My dear college friend and fellow broadcast journalism classmate from BYU, Kelsey Nixon, is today's podcast guest. Kelsey is one of the most successful students to come out of our graduating broadcast journalism class. As a contestant on the Food Network Star Season 4 to landing her own cooking shows with the Cooking Channel, regular appearances on the Today Show and Rachel Ray, publishing cookbooks, and even creating an exclusive product line with the Home Shopping Network, and now hosting her own show with BYU TV called Dinner Takes All. But today, Kelsey and I talk about her journey with bringing babies into the world, her physical and emotional struggles that she went through with her first son's premature birth and second son, who was also born prematurely and ended up passing away in the hospital. She opens up about her grief process and how she and her husband, Robbie, decided to have their third child and now their fourth through gestational surrogacy. Today's episode is educational, inspirational, and spiritual. I learned so much from Kelsey during this episode, and I'm excited to share her story, wisdom, and life experiences with you guys today, too. You guys, today on the podcast, I have a longtime friend who I have admired for many, many years. And my first recollection of Kelsey Nixon, who's here with me, is just a ball full of energy, just bouncing off the walls, so happy, so excited about life. And I met her in the dorms at BYU when we were both freshmen. And we ended up in the same program together, broadcast journalism, and I've just watched her shine and grow and be um, such a light in everything that she does. And she's been on Food Network and the Cooking Channel, and and she is a world-renowned chef and um, content creator, and I just love her to pieces, and I'm so excited to talk to her today. So, Kelsey, say Hi. Hello, world-renowned. Wow, Corinne, yes. no one's ever said world-renowned. I'll take it. You are. <laughs> you are far too kind. That is so, such a nice introduction. And really, Corinne, you and I, we had some great starts together in the BYU broadcast program. I have lots yes. of memories of being in that newsroom with you. Well, and let's also bring it back to, what was it called? Cooking with Kelsey or something? Uh, Kelsey's Kitchen. What was your Kitchen. very first show? Kelsey's, Kelsey's Kitchen. Kitchen. Right. Yes, and we did the Coke chicken and um, some of these yeah. like really great starter recipes that yeah. I was like helping you shred chicken in the background, like that's just getting right. things ready. Oh yep. my gosh, that's right, Corinne. You did. You, were, you worked on the show a little bit, right? I did. So that's oh. my claim to fame. You're my claim to <laughs> that's fame. Amazing. That's so great. Wow. It's. I still can't believe it's been what 10 plus years since all of that happened oh my god it's unfortunately been longer than 10 years Kelsey we're getting old yeah oh my gosh okay well I'm not gonna do the math but I'll trust I'm so grateful that you and I have have come far from shedding chicken in a sad BYU TV studio so anyways poorly lit teeny BYU TV studio yeah so, um, so tell us all what you're up to now. Oh my goodness. What am I up to now? Well, um, I left BYU. I went and, um, I got married and my husband and I moved to New York city. We both had always had a dream to move to New York city and New York is really where I, um, pursued my career in food television. I had the opportunity to host cooking shows for food network and cooking channel and, and kind of do a variety of other things in, in that food media space. And then um, about three years ago, we made the transition. We always say we traded skyscrapers for evergreens. Um, and we moved to Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon. And we've been in Portland, Oregon for the past couple of years. We have 
um, two beautiful children, one on the way. And um, I have continued to do television. I travel mostly for it. But what's great about it is um, TV is, is shot in a sense where you'll shoot a lot of episodes at once, 24, 48 episodes at once for a condensed wow. amount of time. And then you, you have a lot of freedom with your schedule. And so that way I can, you know, create content for my social platforms and things like that. But um, so it's really busy for short amounts of time. And then I get a lot of time to be at home with my kids. And so um, I, I enjoy that so much. That's so awesome. So um, you guys have Ollie. How old is he now? Ollie is seven. And okay. I and have, her, have yeah, a three-year-old daughter, Nora. It's actually her birthday today. So she is three oh. today. Happy birthday, Nora. And then you guys have a little angel baby too, Leo. We do. We have Leo. So Leo Wood has been four and a half and we lost Leo um, after a second, very complicated pregnancy for me. He was born um, just shy of 25 weeks, weighing 15 ounces and it was miraculous that he survived his birth. And then he went on to live for about a month and, you know, we were at some of the best hospitals in, in the world, really in New York City. And we just kept saying, oh, he's so miraculous. He has purpose and a reason to live. And then it, I mean, we really did not think he was going to pass. And he did. And it just kind of, um, it, I changed forever when that happened. Um, and anyways, it is, grief is a tricky thing. It's different for everyone. But my time has been very good for my grief. And um, anyways, Leo, we, Leo is someone we discuss daily in our home. Um Mm. and we oh we miss we miss him so much but we are we're so grateful and have have found so much purpose in his short life yeah well that's beautiful and I love that you say um first of all that grief is different for everyone we've really experienced I have experienced that for the first time um, in our little family here, just sure. having Neil go through that this year. And, and it is very, I mean, it, it doesn't matter like when something that happens right away like that, it doesn't matter how many people try to give you advice or tell you what to expect or tell you what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. It's just so different for each person. And right. that's something that I've, um, watched this year. So tell me, um, you were saying he, that changed you forever. Tell me some of the ways yeah. that it changed you. Well, it really, I went through some, somewhat, life had just felt pretty manageable up until that point. And my first son, mm-hmm. Ollie, also came early. He came at 28 weeks at two pounds and he was in the That's NICU right. for a couple of months. Also unbelievably challenging. And up until that point in life, that was the most challenging thing we'd gone through. But Leo's situation was more dire. And, you know, we had a happy ending with Ollie. We brought him home from the hospital and he's gone on to thrive and not really have any um, lasting effects from his prematurity. And um, with Leo, I kind of, it's like I'd been through that before. And I kind of thought after he was born, we just got to persevere. And these incredible doctors are telling us that this baby has fight in him and he must have purpose. And, you know, Robbie and I even wrapped our minds around the idea that given his size and his prematurity, he would likely have, um, disabilities or suffer from something like cerebral palsy or blindness or deafness. And so in that short time that he was alive, it's almost like we felt the call to be special needs parents. And we found beauty in that. And we were almost excited to take on this role of giving this baby the best life possible, given any physical 
um, setbacks and, and then he died and I just did not see it coming. And I almost feel foolish for saying that now, but so what that in turn did to me, mostly spiritually, is I got very angry and very Mm -hmm. angry with God because we had been, I mean, I'd like to think that we're, you know, God bearing devout, you know, Christ centered people. And, and we, Mm -hmm. we prayed fervently and we fasted and we believed and we had faith, but my baby still died. And you hear stories about this and it's like, I don't know. And then every time someone shares a faith promoting experience, whether that be at church on Sunday or on social media, and they say something like, God is so good, or I believe in the power of prayer. And you've just gone through this. And that may be one month, one year, five years. It, it can, it, for me, it ignited anger almost like, well, wait a second. If, if God is so good, why, why didn't he answer this prayer for me? And intellectually, yes. I understand that God can't answer everyone's prayers and he's all knowing and that he has different plans for everyone. But it's still, it was this emotion that I did not see coming. And after going through that experience, what I learned is I would much rather be sad than angry. And angry Mm -hmm. is such an ugly feeling to be consumed by. And um, so I really had to, I really had to work on that. And ultimately the first step of that was getting on my knees and going to my heavenly father and saying, I need to be angry and I can't feel guilty about it. So just so you know, I'm mad. (laughs) I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you that you did not save my baby. And I just need to sit with this for a minute. And then, Mm -hmm. and I felt like, um, I felt like he had a lot of patience with me as I processed some of that grief. Wow. That's really interesting. And and I love that you were, you felt like you could be honest with God and say, this is where I'm at right now. That's such an important thing to be able to just square with God and say, this is where I'm at. Um, And the anger thing really is very interesting to me as far as like loss, because I feel like everyone has to go through that period of anger. So, um, but I love what you said that you want, it was better to be sad than to be angry when you were finally able to move into that. Right, Um, right. You know, it's interesting too, I think going to church or being around other people who are like expressing their faith and what they're going through, I think that can be really tricky when you're going through something so different. So how did you deal with that as far as like people around you who were having a happy ending that you didn't get? Like how, what was that like for you? Yeah, I can actually remember this moment so vividly when we had, it was, I don't know, maybe nine months after Leo had passed with a group of friends that were going to Hawaii and they invited us and we thought, okay, you know, we need something happy in our lives. We went to Hawaii and we were attending a sacrament meeting there. And I remember someone, it was fast and testimony meeting and they got up and basically they said, we lacked direction in our lives and we didn't really know what we were supposed to do. And we prayed about this move to Hawaii and we just felt so good and received the strongest answer to prayer that we were supposed to come to Hawaii. And I sat there thinking, God has time to answer your question about moving to Hawaii, but he can't say my <laughs> Like I was so, ir- I was so irrational, but the thing that changed, the thing that really changed is because on top of that, those irrational thoughts, especially in places like church came guilt mm-hmm. where it's like, yes. why can't I find the faith? Why can't I believe in the plan? What, what is wrong with me? I've been a devout member of this faith my whole life. 
why am I so consumed by anger? And what it took was that honesty piece was it was getting on my knees and saying to Heavenly Father, okay, I don't, I've got to go back a couple of stages here. I want to have faith, but right now I need to even pray for the desire to want to turn to you because I am mad. And and so it initially came from that, like when I would go to church and and hear these things and how to process it, sometimes my prayers at the end of the day were simply for the desire to turn to him. And I think that that's okay. And I think in the end, looking back, that was so transformative in my testimony in like a a mature testimony kind of way, because inevitably Mm -hmm. we will all face something, many things very difficult in this life. And no one's going to get an an easy ride or a free pass. And I think that when you have those experiences, if you have that mature testimony, we're knowing like, I don't have to turn my back on this completely. I can just tell God, I need him to be patient with me while I work this out. And, you know, sometimes for me, I didn't feel immediate comfort from my heavenly father. And I don't think enough people say that all the time. Um, But I think that there was a lesson in perseverance there where I never felt discomfort, but it's almost like you owe me one. (laughs) Like I I just, I need to be enveloped by your love right now. And sometimes I just kind of felt the same. And I think that's okay. I think there's a lesson in perseverance there where if we continue to turn to him and we continue to come back and continue to have faith that it will get better. I think in the end, you end with a more mature, deeper testimony and an understanding for why he wanted you to go through that struggle. So true. And so, so wise of you to to recognize that after, but isn't it all like so much easier to see hindsight, you know? Oh, totally, totally, totally. So that's why For anyone who might be in something, whatever it is, and you're feeling the despair and you're feeling the grief, just keep going. Just keep going. Just continue to, whoever it is that you turn to, just don't give up. Even if you don't have that immediate answer or that immediate result or even those immediate feelings, it doesn't hurt to keep going. And for me, that was the key for me getting through my grief was to wake up every day and stay committed to communicating with my maker and really trying to understand why, not not so much why this was happening, but to accept why this had happened to me. Right. That makes so much sense. So what did that look like for you continuing to go on and, you know, keep moving forward? Yeah. So what it looked like for me is we were really prayerful. I had a great, my husband was a great spouse in that. And, you know, he experienced the grief totally differently than me. He -hmm. did not experience, I mean, a little bit of the anger, but nothing like I felt flooded with. And so he was a great support to me. We committed to continue attending church, even though, let me tell you, nothing's worse than the hymns after you've lost a child. Like, I I just, it just, it was so, and it was so hard to look at our church bench of the three of us thinking there's supposed to be four of us here. And anyways, Mm. it just, but we committed to go. We're going to go every week. We're going to do this. And even there were times where it's like, I got it. I can't make it the whole time, but at least I went. I came and I did this. And so that was, I think, really important. That whole element of we're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to stay the course. But then the most um, transformative thing for me was I felt like, look, because after we lost Leo, we were told by our medical team that future pregnancies were out of the question for a variety of reasons. But I won't go into the details, but the condition that I suffer from in pregnancy both um, puts my life in danger and the danger of any future children. And um, that it's an autoimmune issue and it tends to intensify with subsequent pregnancies. So Ollie was 28 okay. weeks, Leo was 25 weeks. 
if I were to become pregnant again, there's a very good chance that we wouldn't even make it to viability and that I, basically my organs start to shut down. So we could lose me too. So we decided um, that based on that medical advice and answers to prayer that we were to not grow our family in a traditional way anymore. But we knew, we knew we wanted more children. And so I was able to throw that passion for family and that firm belief that I knew there were more into this whole journey of what growing our family was going to look like. So I did a lot of research on adoption and I talked to adoption attorneys and I talked to agencies. And then, um, you know, we, we kind of just threw our minds into what's this going to look like the next thing for us. And it was actually at my six week um, postpartum appointment with my doctor where I had told her, I really want more children. I'm not going to get pregnant on my own. And she said, well, you know, you're a great candidate for gestational surrogacy. And I hadn't really mm. thought about it much at that point, um, just because I was really unfamiliar with what it actually was. And then mm-hmm. we thought back to a conversation that we'd had with Robbie's sister, Bessie, who had said, you know, I have a friend whose sister carried her baby. And if you guys really can't have more babies, I'll totally carry a baby for you. But it was almost said in jest, like in passing and like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever do that. But once my doctor yeah. suggested this, um, Betsy also subsequently had, had come back to us saying, I'm serious. I will totally carry a baby for you. And so at that point we started to do research about what would this actually look like? What would this actually cost? Is this a viable option? Um, and compare it to some of the option, other options for growing our family. So when you ask, how did I get through it? It was such a gift to be able to throw myself into, okay, I can't have children, but I'm going to figure out how to get my children here. And it was almost like this mama bear sense of like, I am going to figure this out. And I've got a very type personality. I'm very goal driven and oriented. And it became like this mission in a sense. And I wanted to do it now. So there would be people that would say, Oh, don't you need to give yourself more time? It was like, no, this is what I need to be doing right now. I need to be working to get my family here. So shortly after that appointment, we started into the whole IVF process and and down the path of gestational surrogacy. Wow. So, I mean, this really is, I think you're the only person I know personally who has been through this. I think it's pretty rare. I mean, I Mm -hmm. have a handful of friends who have done IVF for, you know, to carry their own baby, but like uh, their own pregnancy, but I really don't think I know anyone so mm-hmm. who's been through this. So talk me through, is it similar to other traditional IVF uh, processes where it's sure. like you're giving yourself shots all the time and you're yeah. doing all kinds of crazy things to prepare and your body goes sure. through a lot of craziness? What is that yeah. like? So basically what it is, is once you have, um, once you have a carrier, and let me just say this for anyone who may know someone or maybe find themselves in a situation, a carrier is it's difficult to be approved as a carrier. It essentially needs to be a woman who is done having her own family. Um, there are certain exceptions there, but because heaven forbid this person gets pregnant and there's a complication and they lose their uterus and then they couldn't continue growing their family like they had once planned. Uh, so yes, they need to be sense. done having their own children. They need to have a squeaky clean pregnancy history, no complications. Um, you know, being great medical condition themselves and great physical condition. And then there's also a whole psychiatric evaluation that both she and her partner have to um, pass. So Mm. it's um, in the same way that adoption is not successful when you just randomly 
you know, if you were to just go up to somebody and say, hey, I'll adopt your baby. And they say, great, sure. And there was no screening process or no attorney or no contract process. That would be dangerous. And same thing with surrogacy. So before we even get to the medical stuff, this carrier goes through weeks of medical clearance, psychological clearance, everything Mm -hmm. like that to make sure that they are an ideal candidate. Um, And that's very important to the success of surrogacy. So as far as the medical stuff goes, I essentially did the first half of IVF and my sister-in-law did the last half of IVF. So what that looks like is me giving myself shots and hormones and injections to create more eggs. And then they went in and they did the egg retrieval process where they pulled out the eggs. And then they took my husband's sperm and fertilized those eggs and created embryos in a lab. And then we grew Mm -hmm. those embryos to be five days. And at that point, they're able to biopsy the embryos to then genetically test the embryos. And I, I bring that up because I think there's some misconceptions about genetic testing. And, you know, you hear things like designer babies and, and all of that. And genetic mm-hmm. testing is, is not for that. What genetic testing does is it increases your odds of success with something like IVF. And most fertility clinics, or at least the fertility clinics that I've been in contact with, won't even transfer a genetically abnormal embryo into a carrier. Because mm-hmm. what you do, if you know it's, genetically normal, you reduce the risk for miscarriage, you reduce the risk for something like if that embryo were to have a trisomy, where the fetus could be carried to full term, but would never survive its birth or have life, that makes it some really difficult decisions have to be made then. And you're not just working with one person, you're working with two people. So we want to do everything we can to avoid those situations. So anyway, so you do the genetic testing. And then, you know, let's say you start with 13 eggs. My situation, we were lucky to have two or three embryos when it's all said and done. So Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to get usable embryos if you're not in your 20s. (laughs) At least that's that's been my experience. Right. Right. Because those eggs are however many years old you are. That's how old your eggs are. Exactly. Exactly. But then they can be frozen and then they're indefinitely that age. So what we did is we created these embryos um, and then we literally hired a medical shipping service because we were living in New York City and she lived in, she still lives in Boise, Idaho, and we shipped the embryos to Idaho. And once Mm -hmm. the embryos got to Idaho, to the fertility clinic there, then Betsy started her half of the IVF process, which also included shots and injections and hormones and basically kind of preparing her body to receive the embryos. So thickening her uterine lining, making sure that her estrogen and progesterone levels are balanced so that once the embryo comes into her, her body knows, oh, it's time to be pregnant. Um, so we did, we did our first transfer where we transferred two embryos and unfortunately it did not work, which was a whole other challenge because it, it felt like finally here we go. This is what's supposed to happen. We feel so good about this. And then it didn't work. And we're like, Heavenly Father, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? This is supposed to work. And then we had to kind of make a decision at that point. Do we want to try again? Um, And so we spent nine months trying to get Betsy's body in just a little bit better condition. And the thing was, Betsy had an IUD for like eight years. So for eight Mm -hmm. years, her body had been told, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. Um, and so it took a little bit longer to build up her uterine lining. Um, and then the second transfer we transferred to again, and one of those embryos took, which is our daughter, Nora. What a cool story.
kind of an awkward question. No, that's I asked him. So for her, is there is it just like literally an act of service on her end? Is she yeah. like is it something that she's like in a typical situation? I guess maybe this sure. is super personal to ask for you and her. No, but in a typical ask, situation, ask is it like are they paid to like is that? I don't even so know. Is, That's such a no, weird totally. question, a, but like it's a good question to ask because it's things. If you find yourself in this predicament of trying to figure out how to grow, grow your family, this is a question that needs to be asked. And admittedly, these were the questions that made me nervous initially yeah. when I was like, I kind of just assumed, oh, it would be adoption, but honestly, adoption did not feel right for us. And just a mm-hmm. note on that, I think that I carried some guilt with that because in some ways it felt like adoption would have been the more noble thing to do, but we did not feel right about it. And I think that just Mm. because you want a baby or you want to grow your family does not automatically make you a good candidate to be an adoptive parent. Um, I think that there's so much that goes into that and those sweet children needing to be adopted, need to be adopted by parents who are willing and ready and to accept all of the facets that come with adoption. And we right. honest, we were just too broken. We were so brokenhearted that the thought of me giving our birth mother so much control, I just wasn't in a place where I felt like I could do that. And then, you know, we ended up finding surrogacy. But so to answer your question, it can happen a couple of different ways. I would say you'd be hard pressed to find any carrier out there that was not altruistically motivated. The women who do this, genuinely want to help and see families grow. There is a fair amount of women, probably most women who do it are compensated in some respects. I think in instances where you see that a woman isn't compensated is like a family member. So no, Betsy did not receive, she did not want compensation. They have a really stable, comfortable life and they didn't need the compensation. She was simply doing it as a gift to our family. And we were so, so grateful for that because all of these other elements of surrogacy are so expensive. So that was, um, I mean, just to relieve that financial burden after we'd gone through everything we'd gone through and we paid crazy medical bills for Leo's care, it was mm-hmm. such a gift. But yeah. um, forgive me for jumping ahead, but we are, we are doing surrogacy again. We are uh, right. in the pr- process here where we had one remaining embryo And we had the option to either donate it to science or try and use it. And we really wanted to use it. And actually, thanks to my sister-in-law, Betsy, she introduced us to a really close friend of hers who had expressed interest in caring for us. So we transferred that embryo um, in July of this year. And it took, which was crazy because it took four embryos to get Nora. So the fact that it worked was just amazing. Um, but May, her name's Megan. We love her so much. But Megan obviously is not a family member. She wasn't mm-hmm. a close friend. And, and so we felt that it was appropriate to compensate Megan for her time, time away from her family. Um, the Obviously, the physical um, aspects that her body would have to go through. And we just, we felt that that was, that was appropriate in this, in this situation. And um, so the way that works, is it, it tends to be different state by state and mm. it gets, gets very complicated, but different states have different laws about surrogacy and um, with the different laws come kind of different, I don't want to say different practices because you're not seeing back in the nineties, there were some crazy stories about surrogacy where a woman would carry a child for a couple and maybe it was her egg and then someone else, you know, the intended father's sperm 
and she would go through the pregnancy, deliver this baby, and then realize she had a very difficult time giving the baby over. And right. the key component there is that's her baby. She's genetically tied to that baby. That's her baby. Mm-hmm. And you almost never see, that's called traditional surrogacy. And you almost never see traditional surrogacy happen anymore because we realize there's a lot of problems with this. But what you see now, and as people talk about surrogacy now, it's almost always gestational surrogacy, meaning that the woman carrying the pregnancy is not genetically tied to that baby. She is simply acting as a vessel. It's like Mm -hmm. extreme babysitting. (laughs) Truly, she's not... Seriously extreme. (laughs) Yes, very, very extreme. But she really is just growing the baby, and she doesn't have a genetic tie to the child. Um... And so, okay, but I have to ask yeah. you there, like, were you at, was there any part of you that was afraid that even though you knew it was a gestational surrogacy, that yeah. maybe the, having a mom carry a baby inside of her for that amount of time, that it would be really hard once the baby was born? Absolutely. And once again, that's a really, really fair question to ask. But Corinne, given my circumstances, right? Here I am. I can't carry more children. So my options are adoption, where that's a whole relationship, right? Right. Um, or gestational surrogacy, where if I do this, I have a genetic link and tie to this child. And I also mm-hmm. just firmly believed that this was a body for a spirit that was waiting to come down and join our family. And that it was right. my baby's spirit that was going to connect me to her, not, not the way in which she spent the first nine months of her life. And so was it a concern? Absolutely, it was a concern. You know, it helped because I had a really close relationship with my sister-in-law. And I knew very, <laughs> very certainly that she did not want more children. She did not want this yeah. thing. She was, she was in the most sincere and genuine act of service doing this to help us see our family grow. And granted, my first, um, my first pregnancy with Ollie was not, you know, it was an emergency C-section. I never got the moment of them putting the baby on my chest. So I don't know what that, I mean, I knew what it felt like to grow two babies, but mm-hmm. when Nora was born and she literally was born right into my arms, we had an amazing doctor who was like, if you can't carry your baby, you're going to deliver your baby. So there I was, Aww. I was gowned up and I, and so she literally was born into my arms. And I have never felt closer to a human being in my life. It was the most spiritual um, movie. Heaven has never felt closer. And so now getting ready to go through this again, I don't have one bit of concern that I won't feel connected to this child. We have worked so hard to get these babies here. And every prayer that has been said and every plea to our Heavenly Father to help our family grow, I believe that I've been developing that bond with those babies. They know how badly we wanted them. And now, as I look at Ollie and Nora, no difference whatsoever in the fact that I carried Ollie and I didn't carry Nora. Um, so I think from an outside looking in, you, you would be concerned about that. But let me tell you, when you've waited that long for a baby and you've worked that hard to get a baby, I, I instantly felt connected to her and just relished every deep breath I took as that baby <laughs> laid on my chest, like a level of gratitude that I, I can't even put into words. That's so beautiful. Totally had me in tears because <laughs> I just can picture that moment of you yeah. holding your baby and um, wow. And seriously, what a gift for, I mean, for everyone involved to be able right. to feel that and feel that close to heaven. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to ask you another tricky question. Mm-hmm. What, what do you wish people would know not to say? Because I'm sure there's all kinds of things that people say meaning sure. well that maybe they shouldn't say to someone in this situation. Yeah. And honestly, first of all, I would rather someone ask me a question than make an assumption. So mm-hmm. I feel I, I'm happy that you're asking questions where you say, oh, this might be too personal because I, I feel like there's an education element here where there's a lot of assumptions made where it's like, oh, the people who do service here are people like Kim Kardashian. And like, yes, you know, and, and like you it's must, always a glamour thing. Like, I don't want stretch marks or something. I, how, you know, <laughs> heaven forbid I mess up my body or like, or you have to be, you have to make millions and millions of dollars in order to afford surrogacy. Honestly, our surrogacy, um, I think there's also a misconception about, well, I don't, I want to be careful how I say this because surrogacy is going to cost a different amount depending on the state you live in. So like the, the amount at which we're compensating Megan is reflective of the cost of living in this, of the state that she lives in. So basically we have a reproductive attorney and she's very familiar with all of the, the laws in Idaho. That's where she's located. And there's kind mm-hmm. of a going rate for a first time carrier or someone who carried before. And so we are paying her the fair going rate for the state of Idaho. And I'm actually happy to tell you what it is because I think there's so much misconception about it. And we've been, we've been sharing a little bit on Instagram and she's mentioned it on her page and I mentioned on mine, but the going rate for a first time carrier in the state of Idaho is $30,000. So if Megan were to go and get a job for 10 months, there's a good chance she would probably make more than $30,000. Do you know what I mean? So it's not about the money. It's not like she's walking away with six figures to go and like travel the world, which I don't care what she does with that $30,000, whether <laughs> it's save money for college funds or put a down payment on a house, whatever it is, it's time. It's time and it's a medical writ. There's all these things. And so it took me a long time to come around to this idea of being comfortable with the compensation. In fact, mm-hmm. the first thing around, I used to always say like, Oh, I'm so glad we're doing this with a suspecty, but I'm not sure I could ever compensate anyone. I think I just feel too weird about it. But then as Mm -hmm. I became part of this surrogacy community and I saw these beautiful relations, relationships develop between intended parents and carriers, despite compensation or not, my mind just, I I mean, you pay for an adoption, right? People don't give away babies for free when it comes to adoption. So I understand why it's, it's frustrating, but I think the cost element, um, it's something that's really interesting. Now, if you were in California, where you are, surrogacy is a lot more expensive because the cost of living is so much more expensive. So I actually don't know what the going rate is in California, but a reproductive attorney might say, okay, so typically for a first-time car- carrier in this state, we pay this much. Um, mm. But with that said, if you, I mean, every situation's a little, every situation's a little different. And ultimately what happens is there's a contract drawn up by a reproductive attorney that basically protects the intended parents, it protects the carrier, and it protects the baby. And everything, I mean, it's like 60 pages long. Um, but the same thing for like an adoption. You would have a very thorough contract to make sure everyone's right. expectations are aligned and whatnot. So I bring up the cost thing because I feel like it's something that everybody wants to know about but doesn't have the guts to actually ask. And then assumptions mm-hmm. are made that the only people who can afford surrogacy are people like Kim Kardashian. And don't misunderstand that $30,000, a lot of money to my family, huge financial sacrifices to save for this, but it's not 
$250,000. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yes, yes. It, it was attainable for my family through, through really um, fervent savings. So there's that. And then the only other thing I'll say that, and I don't, this isn't hurtful to me when people say this, I get worried about people saying it to people said it to Betsy all the time and they say it to Megan, but they'll say things like, how will you ever give that baby up? And what's important to know is that it's not their baby. And they never went into this thinking, oh, I might get to take this baby home. <laughs> you know what right, I like? Right. No one doing this wants this child for them. And you know that because they go through a very thorough psychological evaluation beforehand to make sure that they're doing it for altruistic reasons, that they are primarily doing this to help see a family grow. The payoff for Megan and the payoff for Betsy is that euphoric feeling of delivering this baby and watching you like truly help create a family. Can you think of yeah. anything like truly like just in an unbelievable thing to be able to do for somebody, the ultimate act of service and gift that you could give someone. So I think people assume that a carrier is going to have a really hard time giving up the baby. And I say giving up with air quotes because they're not giving up. It's they're giving it back. Right. This right. is your genetic right. child. And, um, and from, I'm sure there are situations that are different, but like I said, as I have gotten to know people in the surrogacy community, you just don't hear about that. You hear just the opposite. You hear carriers rave about the unbelievable experience it was in carrying a baby so much so that many, many carriers do it more than once. And so, um, anyways, I just, that, that might be one thing that if you're, if someone in your life is experiencing surrogacy, don't ask their carrier how they'll ever <laughs> find the will to give up their baby. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. So I'm really glad that you shared that. And I'm sure that's something that people commonly experience. On the flip side of that, uh -huh. what do you feel like your friends and family have done to be most supportive to you? What has felt good to you guys and what's been most helpful and supportive in this whole journey? Oh, that's a great question. Well, we have had an unbelievable support network. My goodness, we just have felt so loved by our family and friends. And honestly, beyond that, even um, the community that follows me on Instagram and just the sweetest, sweetest response. And we're, we're so grateful for that. Um, honestly, the thing that I appreciate most is when people, even though I'm not physically getting bigger, people remember that we're pregnant, right? Like I was, yeah. I, I was at a church activity last night and someone, someone said, now you're about halfway along now. Right. And it's like, Oh, mm. it's so nice that you would even think to remember that we're about 20 weeks along and talk to me as if I am carrying the baby. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that, that means a lot. Yeah. Try not to ignore. Like I realized, trust me, I realized now like outside looking in, this is not traditional. And you know what I mean? I would have never pick this this is not I would love to be feeling my baby kick in my belly right now but yeah. for people to kind of not be afraid to ask about it or um just ask as if you were actually carrying the baby that has been and then celebrate the way that baby in in the same way as well the other thing I'll say is um people asking about our carrier how's Megan doing oh that's so great or making the effort to pop over her Instagram and leave a comment and knowing that my friends are supporting her. That means a lot to me because she's become such a 
an integral part of our family. So supporting our carrier in addition to supporting us uh, as well. Yeah, that means a lot. I I just realized that I am not sure if you um, shared this or not. Do you guys know the gender of this baby? We do. We do. We do. Have you shared it? Is it? Oh, we is haven't it a secret? shared it. Oh, then, okay, that's okay. Then you keep that to yourself, but that's so exciting. I think we're going to share in January. So follow along. We're we're excited. We're really excited. I mean, we're we're excited regardless. When you have to work so hard to get your babies, honestly, gender is the last thing thing you're worried about. But but also, it's it's fun. And we're, um, yeah, I guess one other thing that people will ask about and I'm just I'm just thinking of anyone who is, is listening that may somehow have surrogacy cross paths in their lives is people always want to know how we're talking to our kids about it mm, um, yeah that is a great question yeah so we have been uh, very open about it I just have not seen any reason to not be open about it and the way we so when we had Nora Ollie was four and a half and so still that's pretty young, but you know, he watched us have his brother and then, you know, like he, he knows he's old enough to know to some extent what's going on. So the way we explained it to him was that mommy's belly is broken and unfortunately she can't grow babies anymore, but through science and God, we were able to take parts of mommy and parts of daddy and make a teeny, teeny, tiny baby. And then we were able to ship that baby to Idaho and put that baby inside Aunt Betsy, and she was able to grow the baby for us, and then the baby's going to be born, and that baby's going to come home and live with us forever. And he was like, okay. <laughs> like, it made perfect sense to him. Like, it was... Isn't it funny how kids just kind of take in that information, and they're just yeah. like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, look, he was at the hospital. He was going to come in and see Betsy in a hospital bed. It's not like we were going to, you know, do a quick costume change. And have me in no. Like, and, and this is such a, this is such a huge part of our family story. And totally. as I raise my kids and we talk about, um, you know, their relatives and their ancestors, I mean, how powerful for, for Nora to have this aunt that sacrificed so much to get her here. And to me, yes. that is something that should be celebrated and not ignored or hidden or anything like that. So totally. We freely talk about our baby on the way and um, Nora, like even Nora's three and, you know, she doesn't really get what's going on, but like, I don't even think she would expect for my belly. I don't even think she knows that. So we talk about it. There's so little. Yeah. There's so little, but as our kids get older, it is, I mean, we are going to be very forthcoming, happy to talk about the science of it and how we you know, we were so prayerful about it and how we're just grateful that this opportunity was even available for our family to grow in this way. So cool. I want to ask you as far as like your healing has gone with, um, with just everything that you guys have been through and what you're the stage you're in now, what do you feel like you've learned the most as far as, you know, everything that all of Mm -hmm. this has taught you? Yeah. Well, I'm still learning. I'm definitely still learning, but I've come so far in my process with the loss of my son. And one thing I was so hung up on when he passed was he was supposed to have purpose. What was his purpose? I just want to know what his purpose was. And, you know, there's elements of that that intellectually don't make sense. Like, but emotionally, that's how I felt. 
And as time has passed, and we talk about hindsight being such a beautiful thing, I have mm-hmm. realized that his purpose was getting these babies here. If Leo had not passed, I don't think we ever would have grown our family again. There's no way we would have done gestational surrogacy. I think we would have had his life, and I think he would have had several challenges, and we would have been devoted to our two boys. And, and so in some ways, I see Leo as his greatest gift to us was Nora and this baby on the way. And I feel so strongly that he is on the other side, just watching with the biggest smile on his face, thinking this was it. This was my purpose. This is my purpose to help my family grow. And um, I am so grateful to him. I remember one of the times I had felt closest to God was the night before Sora was born and just feeling immense gratitude for him. And just so grateful that he, he had been cheering us on from the other side and that it, how brave of him it was to come here to fight so hard, to fight the fight, and to allow us to, to develop love for him for those for that month-long period and to realize just how badly we did want a sibling for our son and to see our family grow. And then he passed and he started helping from the other side to really help us grow in such a beautiful, beautiful way. So what I learned is that whole notion of perseverance and to keep going. You never know what's ahead. You never know. And sometimes a hardship as challenging as losing a child may be just one stepping stone to getting to an experience that will change your life forever, for eternity. Yeah. And and that has just been such a uh, it's it's just been transformative in that sense. So now as we you know, we still go through lots of trials. We have our, we have our trials just like everybody else. So it is such a right. beautiful reminder to look at that and think we may be going through something really difficult right now, but it may just be setting us up for something so much greater in the future. And that is, that's been by far the greatest lesson I've learned as we've lost him and welcomed um, Nora into our family. That's beautiful. And I really love the idea too, of those who we love, who've passed on, on the other side, like they're busy. They're, they're busy at work making things, helping, I believe, helping make things happen here for the people that they left behind, you know, the people that they love who are still on the earth. So I love that idea of him just like orchestrating things and helping things come together so that you guys can grow your family. What a beautiful idea. Yeah. Well, I just have really learned so much from you and enjoyed this so much. Um, I feel like I have a whole new perspective on what it must be like for a family who goes through gestational surrogacy. And sure. I just really, really appreciate everything that you've been willing to share. So I have one last question for you. Yeah. And that is, if whoever is listening to this remembers one message from you, what do you want that one message to be? Oh, to keep going, to persevere, whatever it is, whether you're trying to grow your family, whether you're trying to get a job, whether you're you know, processing grief, just that notion of, and I, the, the reason I like the phrase keep going is because when I have been in the depths of despair, even the term faith, I, it was too hard for me to wrap my mind around it. It's almost like I had to, I, that talk about praying for the desire to, to even want to turn to my heavenly father, but to wake up every day and think, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to persevere and I'm going to continue to work towards this. I don't know exactly what that looks like, whether that is 
by getting on my knees and praying to my heavenly father or by putting one foot in front of the other and pursuing a business opportunity or whatever it may be. But that is just, I just, that's what got me through this. It's what got me through Leo's death. It's what got me through the process of trying to figure out gestational surrogacy and Nora's pregnancy. And it's what's getting me through this pregnancy where it's like, some days are going to be harder than others, but you just have to keep going. You have to keep going. I love that so much. And it's I, applicable to everyone, no matter what, yeah. like you said, no matter what you're going through. So right. thank you so much for all of this. You got it. If people have just loved listening to you, and I know that they have, um, where can they find you? Where can they see your recipes and your beautiful family oh, and good. find out yes. the gender of your baby and yeah, all know, of those things? I know, I know, I um, know. Um, if it were up to me, we would have shared by now, but you know, I'm not the only one in this game. Um, you can find me, I'm on Instagram, Kelsey Nixon. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and then, um, my site, KelseyNixon.com, has so many yummy recipes, uh, recipes that I cook for my family, really easy, easy recipes. And then I'm also the host of Dinner Takes All on BYU TV. It's a really fun um, family food competition game show where two families compete to see who can make the best meal and compete in silly little games along the way. And the winner wins $10,000. We have the best time on Dinner Takes All, so you can also uh, catch me there. Awesome. We'll put all of those links too in our show notes um, so people can find all of those things too. So thank you again for just taking the time to share this with me. You got it. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.